Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. You know, my my global network is continuing to grow. And the gentleman that I have on this morning, once again, I was introduced to by a guest I had on the show. Let me tell you a little bit about Sean Askinosi. Sean left a successful career as a criminal defense lawyer to start a bean to bar chocolate factory. This is kind of like the Willy Wonka story. We're going to have some fun with Sean today. His company, Askinosi Chocolate, was recently named by Forbes, one of the 25 best small companies in America. So far, the company has provided over a million school lunches to malnourished children in Tanzania and the Philippines without any donations. Founded at the forefront of the American craft chocolate revolution and regarded by many as a vanguard in the industry, Sean was named by O, the Oprah magazine, as one of the 15 guys who are saving the world. Sean has received two honorary doctorates and given a popular TEDx talk. He's co-written a book with his daughter, Lauren, called Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. He is a family brother at Assumption Abney, a Trappist monastery near Ava, Missouri, and also the co-founder of Lost and Found, a grief center now in its 20th year, serving children and families in Southwest Missouri. Sean, it is so delightful to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Deb. Looking forward to it. Lawyer turned chocolate entrepreneur. Cannot wait. First leadership question. I have a lot of colleagues and friends that are in the law industry And like any other sector or any other career, professional career, it comes with stresses. When did you draw the line in the sand to say, I'm ready to have an exit strategy to leave your law practice? And what drew you to chocolate? You know, often these moments where we, as you say, draw the line in the sand are only available to us upon reflection. Because for many of us, we can't tell at the time what exactly is happening. We just know that it's something, something's stirring. And that's the way it was for me. It was near the conclusion of a murder case, right before I was about to give closing arguments in a very high profile murder case. And uh, it was at that moment that I now see upon reflection that I realized I needed to do something else. As to what drew me to chocolate, I've done this now for almost 16 years, Um, really 17 if you count when I started planning this. And you can imagine I've received this question a lot. And really, this isn't probably a great answer, but I don't know. And I'm willing to 
embrace that now in a way that I, I wasn't quite able to do, say, 10 or 12 years ago. It just kind of happened. I didn't have a lifelong love for chocolate. I didn't have a hobby with chocolate. I didn't taste chocolate. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that I was going to be doing something else. I needed some hobbies. So I started grilling outdoors and then I started baking. Then I started making chocolate desserts. And at the time I thought, well, maybe I'll just make chocolate from scratch as a business, not knowing where it came from. And there really wasn't anyone in North America making bean to bar chocolate back then. And now there's hundreds. And so that's kind of how it happened. What I love about that is I'm also a yoga teacher. So for me, listening to your, I don't know, I think you found your soul work. And, you know, it's very interesting because Oprah talks a lot about that. And she's named you one of the 15 guys who are saving the world. And I'm sure you don't take that lightly. No. You know, when I look at the transition of what you've done and, and what, you know, even when it came to you as you were preparing your closing remarks in a trial, that to me is, is a huge aha moment, not to sound cliche, but you don't know why. But I like to almost say, is it your head and your heart coming into alignment, listening to your soul? I think that's possible. I, I can say this that I did this work defending people accused of very serious crimes. And I really built my reputation in the defense of murder cases. And, you know, I was listening to the call of that vocation at that time. It was truly a vocation. And candidly, I was probably a much better lawyer than I am a business person and chocolate maker. I didn't lose a jury trial in all those years in any criminal case. And I was doing the work I was called to do until I wasn't. And so for me, one of the things that I try to listen to is when I love something, one of my prayers is that I will be released from it at the right time. And this has been a longstanding practice for me. And it's also aspirational. But I was very clearly released from that work. I, I couldn't use that kind of language then. I wasn't as self-aware as I am now. And I would also say that it was a rising awareness. And over the years, that awareness, as it happens with many of us, you know, it's not so much a journey as it is a rhythm. It's the, the ocean rhythm, you know, washing up on the beach and then drawing back into the ocean again. That's the way it's been for me in terms of rising awareness and connecting with what Thomas Merton would, would call um, our true self. That's the way it's been happening for me. So that was very much a calling. And, then, and this is very much a calling. And you know what I hear from the way you frame that is it was also a calling, but a release from a high level of hypervigilance. No question. Absolutely, it was. And hypervigilance is the apt word for it, because if you were to observe me, then you would say, I mean, I was a fighter, you know, I was an advocate, I was a warrior for my clients. And whether it's a calling or not, you, you can only do that for so long. And I might have even done it a little bit longer than I should have. I resonate with that because I, I left the medical case management world 
and had to testify a lot in court and, you know, defense counsel was my nemesis. I, I would be prepared, but it still wasn't a pleasurable experience, but I got that soul calling like you did. And it took me a year to come down from that hypervigilance because I was advocating for really catastrophically injured people. So I so get that space that you were in and that calling and, and it's such a joy to see such a difference that you're making now in the world. My second leadership question is super fun. It has permanent residency on the show. It's named after the show. Share with the listeners what imperfections that Sean brings to his heart-centered leadership. Well, I mean, I, the list is so long that we would have to do a 10-part series on this. And the reason that it's long is because the notion of imperfection is actually, I make that a practice. It's, it's really a part of who I am and embracing the imperfection. And I can tell you without going into a lot of detail that, you know, for the last couple of years, I have been in what the people in my faith tradition would call a dark night of the soul. And it's not depression. It can be accompanied with depression, but it really is what we call a dark night. And that can be a very uncomfortable place, especially for a long time. It can really be very uncomfortable. However, there is and can be a measure of beauty in the midst of this darkness. And I would also relate that to this idea of imperfection and darkness. And so if I can not panic and be patient and see the imperfection and be with it, then I can also find beauty in it. And not just beauty, but divine beauty. And so it's a very important concept for me, but also important for our business. Even our design, the design of our chocolate bar packaging has certain imperfections in it, which are accepted and not only accepted, but just built in. The Japanese have a term for it. It's called wabi-sabi. And that wabi-sabi is, is not only a, in Japan, and the Native American tradition has the same thing. But the interesting thing about it is, is that works of art are more valuable in the wabi-sabi tradition that have been broken and repaired than the original work of art itself. And so I, I have tried to apply that through all aspects of our business, our design, the way we do business, the way we manage cash, all of it. Uh, the way we resolve tension within the team, we have a very small company, my daughter and I, it's 22 people. And I've come to this place where, you know, it's fine if not everybody is drinking the Sean Askinosi Kool-Aid that used to bother me when I was younger. Now I want to consider that an imperfection. And I want to, cons I I want to find ways to embrace that tension. Those are some examples. That's one of my favorite answers. And I've, I've asked over 180 plus leaders that question. I love that it's a daily practice for you. And I, I join you in that daily. I, I mean, if we can't have candor and a good laugh at ourselves. And, and like you said, I think with aging and maturity, we do look at things differently. But imperfection has a place in our life, personally and professionally. So I super love that. I love the, the Sean Kool-Aid comment too. 
That's a heart centered leader. That's a big release. That's a cognitive release. Now you have a beautiful daughter named Lauren and the two of you wrote a book together. Again, tell us where this message from the heart came to write this and and how it all came together and, and what a beautiful experience and memory, heirloom memory, I like to call it, that you have with your daughter. Yes. Thank you for asking about this. So this was a three-year project and she, my daughter and her family live in Austin. And I say family because that's her husband and my granddaughter, uh, Goldie, who's 20 months old. So we also spend a lot of time in Austin, but during the time of the writing of the book, it was three years and back and forth collaboration using uh, Google docs. And originally way back, I didn't want to write a book. I didn't really feel pulled Um, to write a book because I didn't think that I had anything original to say. And there really isn't very much original in the book, but I'm speaking to a particular lane of people in the book, a very, very narrow lane, but it can include a lot of people. And so I felt like, well, even if I'm bringing a message that's not original, it might be first heard by some of the people in my audience. And so that's really what pushed me over the edge to kind of, you know, be willing to put in this time. And it was, you know, I I wrote the book and Lauren, I wrote 90% of it and then Lauren edited it. And she is a gifted writer, a gifted editor. And so while it was, (laughs) I'm not going to sugarcoat it, it was challenging for us to do this. It was really worth it in the end. And you're right. It's something that, you know, Goldie will have. Goldie will be able to read this work and see what we were thinking and what we were made of. And hopefully she'll be proud of it. So from that standpoint, I'm, I'm really, really glad that I did it and I wouldn't change it. I've not met one person who's authored a book that hasn't said there were moments where they thought, why am I doing this? I don't really want to do this. I'm, I'm knee deep in that process right now. So I align, but it's, it's easier to stay imperfect and keep the vision alive at the end of the road and just one millimeter at a time. So congratulations on your book. The last question I have for you, and I'm really interested in, I'm trained in grief and bereavement, and I know that you are the co-founder of Lost and Found. Can you tell us how you got this idea, why you chose to co-found it, and what's the backstory for this place? One of the things I talk about in the book, and I talk about it generally a lot, is this idea from poet philosopher Khalil Gibran, who said that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And this has been a driving force in my life. It, it was driving me when I didn't even know it. It drives me to this day. And the unmasking of our sorrow is not a one-time thing. It's It also is a practice and it's a a life. And that is coming to recognition of our heartbreak, the heartbreak in our lives, and where we can not only be aware of it and recognize it and be with it, but to also eventually find healing from it. And then finally, where we can find joy from the unmasking of our sorrow. And for me, it was my dad. Uh, he died when I was 14. He died of lung cancer. He was a lawyer too. And my hero and a, you know, a very physically fit former Marine who became really sick. And it was a really hard 
thing for me to go through. Uh, I had a younger brother and my mom really couldn't bring herself to do things like give him pain shots. So I was giving him Demerol as a 13 year old, uh, all hours of the day and night. And it was a two year experience. And to make matters worse, there were people from the church that came over a prayer group and the leader of the prayer group told me to never speak with my dad about death, that if I did, it would be a sign of doubt and he wouldn't be healed. So I pushed my dad away every time he tried to talk about it. I was with him when he died. It was the most desperate moment of my life. Cancer had reached his brain and he basically had a stroke. He'd been trying a case in court the week before. He was at home when he died. And um, that moment of desperation will be with me. And it was a, a moment of heartbreak that had you know, a ripple effect into years and years and years later in my life. And so one of the things after this murder case that I spoke of earlier that I decided to do was to get together with a friend of mine uh, that I'd known for a long time. She is and was then an expert in adolescent grief. And she had years of experience even back then. And it's kind of a long story, but we, we decided um, that there needed to be a place in Southwest Missouri for young people who are grieving the death of a loved one, like a place in Portland, Oregon called the Dougie Center, which really was the premier grief center in North America. They started in 1983. So we hired the Dougie Center to have some trainers come down and teach us their model of reflective listening in support group and open-ended support group model. And we started this uh, in 2000. So we're now we're 22 years on we serve children and families, and now we have all sorts of groups. But in a 22-county area, we've served thousands and thousands of children and their families over the last 22 years. My co-founder and I, Dr. Karen Scott, were about to start another kind of division, if you will, of Lost and Found, and we're starting a center for grief studies to allow people to learn from us and obtain a a certificate in this course that we're developing and courses we're developing for professionals and paraprofessionals. I myself have been a facilitator in a teen group. I did that for about 10 years. And then when COVID happened, I, I stopped doing it and I'm sure I'll resume. So I've been active on the board of directors since the beginning. And this is one of the more important things that I've been associated with in my life. It's a really beautiful story. And I have to say, I, I align with you in this space as well. I was 21 when I lost my dad and also became a very similar caregiver. And when you look back at it, when your middle years where we are and have children and you're, you have a granddaughter, it gives you a different vantage point to really reflect and go, how did I do that? Where did I get the will, the power, the strength, the resilience. And I think it's just another one of those soul calling measures. You co-found a center. And for me, I always talk that grief is not linear and, and we all go through it because you can't go under it, around it. It's messy. <laughs> and right. I love how you framed it. Sorrow unmasked. That's so beautiful. But to take that heartbreak when you get to that juncture in the road of healing, which you so beautifully said, I volunteer at hospice and I, I meet others at different spaces and time in their life. And I'm sure you've been asked, how do you do that? And to share the healing journey with someone to me is the highest level of empathy that we could give another human being. 
at that time. It's, it's priceless. It's, it's another heirloom memory. And, uh, I didn't realize we had this much in common, Sean. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a small world. Yes. And I knew that you had this work that you've done in hospice. I read, cause I, I remember reading that on your website. And of course, I'm sure that your own experience of heartbreak and sorrow and unmasking of your sorrow and turning into joy is why we're talking today. I mean, this is your life's work. And I think it's interesting, you know, because in this moment when, when my father died, and I'm sure you have had similar experiences, I could tell you what, you know, I can tell you the color of the wallpaper. I can tell you everything that happened. It was a, it was a moment of trauma. Um, and especially that trauma brought on a lot by the church people who were maybe well-intentioned, but ultimately very harmful. But I don't think that, let's say, let's call it the divine, where there are a lot of words for it, but we could just say the divine. We know that the reality is there is no time and space. And so if there's no time and space, and time and space is something, it's a, it's a creation in order for us to survive and you know wake up in the mornings and live. And, and that's been the case for however many people have lived on earth since people lived on earth. And the calculations say that there have been about 105 billion people that have lived on earth. And so this moment, let's say like the moment that my dad died, I think that that moment was you know less than a millisecond from the moment that I thought I would co-found a grief center with my friend. It's kind of like what you said, grief itself is not linear. There is no path. We're going to go through this phase and this phase. It's all over the place. It's everywhere. And then back again. And we see this with children and adults. And so I think that it relates to this idea of no time and space. And so this opportunity for healing, I would like to say to people, you know, who might be listening that if you're broken heart was born 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you can have a conversation with that broken heartedness in your life now. And it's not too late. It's never too late to address that and to, and to, and to, as Rumi would say, welcome, you know, this heartbreak into our lives and then ultimately find a place of beauty and life really. You know, it's such a nice uh, framing the way you've said that. And we go through life continuing with stress and loss and trauma. You know, accidents and emergencies don't come with a schedule. And trigger memories is is the one that just grabs us by the neck and pulls us right back. And, And I've had people say, well, what do you mean by that? I can ask anybody on this show or any conversation and say, where were you during 9-11? It's anchored and engraved in our heart. And we all know where we were that day in September when that happened. And for people that haven't experienced it, you can't really explain it because we all (laughs) navigate it different. So I just, I love the transition and the work that you're doing in your business and in your community and globally as a philanthropist. To me, I think it was such a high calling for you. I'm going to switch over to my fab four now. And these are just four fun, rapid questions to show the, the other side of this entrepreneur, this, this chocolate factory man that you are. <laughs> First question, tell us something that we don't know about you. 
I was a professional wrestler in Japan. I went to college in Japan. And while I was there, um, and when I say pro wrestling, I mean the fake kind of pro wrestling. My name was Shooting Sean Springfield. And I had kind of a following and not a lot of people know that about me. I love that. I haven't had a wrestler. That's a first. I love <laughs> it. I absolutely love it. Second question, what book, and this could be at any age in your life, what book have you read that really was transformational for you? What was the name of the book? Who's the author? And, and what did you really take away and carry into your, your life? Or what, how was it cha- life-changing for you? That's easy. Uh, Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album. I've probably bought a hundred copies of that book. There would not be a lost and found grief center. I would not have been a co-founder, but for that book, the beginning of the conversation with my co-founder, when I saw her at a restaurant on a Sunday after church, and, and I said, have you read Tuesdays with Maury? And I was evangelizing the book and she was trying to tell me that she'd read it. And I wasn't even listening. I mean, it, it absolutely was just totally transformative for me. It turned me back around to myself. I think it's one of those books that you read every year. Mm -hmm. You know, you can read it and you're a year wiser, maybe a year uh, more in maturity. Mm -hmm. There's always another nugget to pull out or a different interpretation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a fun book. Yes. Okay. Third question. I'm going to grant you a wish. And the wish is you get to have dinner with a leader. So the leader could be living or they could have already been passed away. Who is the leader and what is the dinner conversation? This is a tough one. I'd probably say Mother Teresa. And uh, I would think for the most part that if I could have dinner with her, perhaps there would be no conversation. Okay, Sean, we're now three for three. That's my pick. (laughs) I have a beautiful picture in my foyer of my house of her standing in Calcutta at one of the orphanages one of the orphanages that my uncle helped her build. And she's just leaning down, just greeting some children. And it's just, it's to me, I, the painting should just be called equanimity because Mm. she was the epitome of a leader and her Mm -hmm. silence was so grandiose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you just, you gave me goosebumps. Like of all the leaders Mm. in the world, you picked Mother (laughs) Teresa. Okay. We're three for three. (laughs) I'm so delighted that our paths have crossed. There's, there's so much serendipity in your previous work, the work you're doing now. I hope I get to try your chocolate. We've made such a big hype. I've heard how great it is. And I just want you to know that I'm, I'm grateful that we've met. I'm grateful that you made time to be on the show. And I'm most grateful that you shared a bit of your story and a bit of your heart with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Keep, keep up the great work. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm like you. I'm a joy spreader. And I'm going to ask you to finish the show for us by finishing this sentence. Heart-centered leadership is? Humility. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.